The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are studying in 1 Timothy this morning. We have completed our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy, and now we're going back and doing a review, which is very important because as, as important as it is to get down in the, the trenches and do verse-by-verse exegesis and uh, expository teaching from the, from the scriptures, when we finish a book like this, it's good to go back and look at what we learned. What have we learned in the process of studying the book of 1 Timothy? And that's what we're going to do this morning is pick up where we left off Uh, last Sunday morning and take it from there. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. It is imperative for us to study the things of the Word of God in the right way with our heart prepared. The silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with today, a day that we were not guaranteed, and your mercies are renewed day by day, and we thank you for that. We ask that now as we take this time to consider the truth of your word that you would bless our time, help each and every one of us to set aside the distractions of our daily lives, to focus our attention on what it is that your word is trying to teach us, that through the ministry of your word as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the things of your word, that we would grow in our faith, become stronger in trusting in you, and become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because day by day, day by day, you are transforming us by the renewing of the mind as we are being conformed to his image. And we thank you for that. Help us to grow. Help us to become stronger. Help us to apply what we learn today so that we can honor you and glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with everything that we do. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen. So I want to start out before we dive into 1 Timothy review. uh, A couple of things that were on my heart. First of all, you know, you've probably heard some of this information about some of the revivals that are taking place in various schools. One of the things I, I would encourage you to do is pay attention to what is going on in those revivals. Are they true spiritual revivals or are they something else? And what I mean by that is, uh, is the gospel being proclaimed? Because I can, have a, I can have a session at a college where I can make everybody feel really good and we can talk about this and we can talk about that. But if Jesus Christ is not being named and Jesus Christ is not being put forth as the only answer the only way to be reconciled to God, then what are we really talking about? We're talking about emotionalism and we're talking about feel good and we're talking about things that are of no eternal value whatsoever. And so you've got to ask yourself the question. For example, you've probably seen the TV ads. He gets us. Well, thankfully, I had done a little bit of work on it, but thankfully Kevin took the time to kind of go and look at what that's all about. It is absolutely a social dialogue it has it is not it is not rooted in scripture it is not about who jesus christ really is it is not about placing your faith in him and becoming a born-again believer and growing in faith and all the other things that the bible exhorts us to do uh, it is it is more of a social movement it's not really about uh getting saved at all yes Yeah, that's a big deal today, too, is the interfaith, which is where the, the claim is that we all worship the same God. I would say, yeah, just one second. I would say if somebody tells you that, uh, that Islam is the same God as our God, I would say, well, did uh, Allah send his son to die on the cross? Because if Allah didn't do that, then we're not talking about the same God. <laughs> we're not talking about the same God at all. Yes. See, 
So it's interesting. So, so Amanda brings up the idea so that, that, that there's a Christian commentary that's talked about that he gets us ads. And even though it is what I was talking about, it is very much kind of a social movement and not really a true gospel evangelistic effort and so on and so forth, um, that even, even though it's not really getting down to the core truth of the scriptures, there's been a lot of negativity and a lot of people come up against them. And you know why that is? Because they name the name of Jesus. That's all it really takes, right? You name the name of Jesus. Now, here's my prayer for all of these different things that are happening. By the way, there's been a revival movement at Asbury, I think is the name of the place. Uh, I understand there's something going on at A&M, a big wave of a revival going on at A&M and, and such. My prayer for all of these is that regardless of what the content is that's being put forth in terms of these things, that people will come to know Jesus as a result of this. Because short of that, I mean, I can, do, I can do everything from A to Z to somehow try to make your temporal life better. But if I don't tell you about Jesus and you don't place your faith in him, then what's it really worth? Because this life is nothing but a vapor. It's over just like that. And eternity in comparison to that is enormous, right? So the idea that I would do something that would give you some, some comfort or some sort of pleasure in this life but I don't tell you about the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ himself, I've done you a disservice, haven't I? I really have. That's the answer. And so I'm just, I'm just advising caution when it comes to these things to pay attention to are they really, is, is Jesus Christ being named as the Savior, the one who is the kinsman redeemer who died on the cross for all of our sins, and the one who is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him, right? That's the person they need to be talking about is Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of the world. Now, that leads me in to my next topic. Something, something came up in the men's prayer breakfast yesterday that I want to talk about. And if, uh, if, you're, if you're actually being at all responsible, gentlemen who were there yesterday, you're probably shaking in your boots a little bit right now, thinking, oh, my gosh, what's he going to bring up? <laughs> But no, what it had to do with is, is we were talking about it in the last hour in Romans as we're doing the review there. As I grow in the faith, I begin to be able to exercise sound judgment. That's the language of scripture. I begin to be able to exercise sound judgment. And that's in regard not only to the situations I find myself in, but others and myself. I can look in the mirror and I can use sound judgment in assessing my own, my own life, my own walk. I need to be able to do that as I grow in the faith, right? I mean, James talks about you look in the mirror and you see it and then you walk away and you forget what you saw. We don't want to do that spiritually, do we? We want to look in the mirror and recognize what we really are. And we, we, we were talking about if I evaluate myself, this is so important what I'm about to say. If I evaluate myself, I'm talking about me, myself, alone, and I ascribe to myself what value I have and what is good about me, what percentage, what would you say in terms of percentage-wise, what would it be? I will tell you my answer is zero. When I'm talking about myself, there is nothing good about me. Now, what about what God's doing in my life? What about what God has wrought in me? I love that word wrought too. I like those old words. What, what, what is God doing in me as his word is performing what it does? Are there things about me that are good now as a result of what God is doing? Yes, but that's not me. That's him. That's God's grace. That's what's happening in my life. If I begin to ascribe to myself, my own self-worth, some value other than zero, I'm in trouble. Because now I'm getting into arrogance. I'm getting into pride. And as was pointed out in the prayer meeting, God, what does God do? He exalts the humble. And he, I'm going to paraphrase here. He cuts the legs out from underneath the proud, doesn't he? <laughs> right? He exalts the humble and he cuts the legs out from underneath the proud. As soon as you start thinking that you inherently are good in some way, you've forgotten who you really are. You've forgotten who you were there at the base of the cross, trusting in Jesus, realizing you had nothing worthwhile to get you into heaven. Only Jesus could get you there, right? Only Jesus could get you there. Now, do I have natural talents? Yeah, but where did they come from? They came from God. Do I have, if I look at the path of my life, has God, has God brought me through many things in my life and blessed me in many ways in my life? Yes, but God gets all the credit for that. Uh, we went and saw a concert. Terry and I went and saw a concert on Friday night. 
uh, down at Green Hall, and we saw the Gatlin brothers. And much to my surprise, much to my surprise, those guys have been singing together for 68 years. They've been touring for 48 years. That was the first time they'd ever played at Green Hall. Can you believe that? They're from Texas. That's like the most famous dance hall in Texas. You would think they would have been there before, but there was a lot of wonderful things that came out of it in terms of the songs that they sang, but they also had a faith message associated with it. They talked about God a lot. They talked about Jesus. One of the songs that they were singing is how fair winds, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't remember the exact words, but how fair winds had been blowing in their lives, all of their lives. And what they mean by that is not a foul wind, but a fair wind, a wind that was helping them move down the road. And it filled up their sails to the extent that it could and was blowing them down there. And they were talking about God. They were talking about how God had blessed them in so many ways. When you look at yourself and you look at your life, your assessment should be, I've brought nothing. God has brought everything. That's how you have to look at it. Because as soon as you start looking at yourself and thinking that you're the one that has uh, so much to offer, now you've forgotten who you really are. You have lost track, and now you're getting into that area of pride, which can be extremely destructive. As soon as you get caught up in pride, you can be... If you look at your life and you say, you know what? Man, I, I've had a blessed life. I've, I've, I've had all these experiences. I've done all these things. I've accomplished all these things. How much of that did you accomplish on your own? Not me, but the grace of God with me, right? The grace of God with me. Yes, we labor. Yes, we labor, but not I, the grace of God. Amen? That's what we always got to remember. So be careful about that because it's real easy to start to ascribe to yourself some, some net value, some worth when the value is all of God, right? Keep that in mind. Very important. All right, that's my exhortation. Now we'll get back to the verse by verse. We, we stopped here last time, verses 12 through 17, God's grace and mercy toward Paul. And this is the translation that we worked on as we went through the Greek and we studied it. I thank Christ Jesus. Well, we didn't go. I, I don't take you through the Greek in 1 Timothy like I do in Romans, but we did go through the verses. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, along with the faithfulness and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I'm going to stop right there. All of us should feel that way among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now that the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's look at some principles of those verses. Every opportunity to serve the Lord is given by his grace. But God opens doors for ministry based on present faithfulness. So what does that mean? So do we get somehow get credit or, or deserve some kind of, of honor because of our faithfulness? No. He looks at our lives. Are we walking in a manner where it's faithful? He's going to open a door for ministry. If we're not being faithful, if, we're, if we are not walking in the, the light as he is in the light, if we're not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, do you think he's going to open a door for ministry for us? No, it's when we're walking and we're being faithful to walk according to the word of God, when we're walking according to the ministry and empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us, as we do what we're supposed to do as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, doors for ministry will open. God's going to open those doors. It's actually Jesus Christ is the one who opens the doors for ministry. Doors can close, by the way, as well. Past failures are overcome by present faithfulness. It's really important to understand because why do I mention this? Because there's some people who say to themselves, there's no way God's going to put me into service and ministry. Look at all the horrible things I've done. I'm telling you right now, and I say this to you, and I think some, I think some of you don't believe me when I, when I say this. If, if I were to start right now and begin to list out for you all the things that I've done that make me unworthy of this ministry that I have right now, we'd be here till tomorrow. I'm serious. I have things I can name in my life. It's countless. It would wear you out. You'd be sick of hearing about it because of all the failures I've had. But 
It's, it's, that's not in God's plan and program. That's not what it's all about, is it? Because I'm totally unworthy. It's only God that makes it come about. Present faithfulness, 2 Samuel 21, 11 through 14. When it was told David about, excuse me, when it's told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men's of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. Hang on. He brought, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble with my mouse here. Hold on. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Well, what am I talking about here? Uh, did, were, there, were there some failures that had taken place? Absolutely. Some failures had taken place. What is David doing? What is David doing by getting those bones and moving them where he felt like they need to be? It's a matter of, the, of honoring them, isn't it? He knew that what had been done was not right, and he wanted to make it right. He wanted to honor them. So were there past failures? Of course. Now, David is doing what he's... Now, did David have any failures? I think a couple. Yeah, I think we can name a couple. But he's doing what is right by taking care of this. If present faithfulness is abandoned, one can be disqualified from ministry. That's what I was talking about before. God's the one that opens the doors, but we can disqualify ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I just have an interesting visual with that. But, uh, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will... Excuse me, I myself will not be disqualified. So God, in his grace, in his mercy, opened the door for ministry for me at this local church. This local church was started in 2009, and God was the one who made that happen. This local lampstand was planted because of him and the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And I have been preaching at this local church since then, but I can make Mistakes that would disqualify me from this ministry. Is it going to cost me my salvation? No. I can't lose my salvation. Can I become disqualified for ministry? Yes. I can do things that would disqualify me from ministry. And I could give you examples, but I'm not going to. Uh, there's a number of examples of, of individuals that fell. Uh, and as a result of what they did, they ended up losing their ministry. But God was still with them. And God picked them back up. And their failures were something that they had to uh, address in their lives and they had to go before God and get his help to deal with those things, but they became disqualified from ministry as a result of, their, of what they did. All right. When God does bless us with opportunities to serve, we must do so by his strength. So God is the one who opens the door for opportunities to serve, and in doing that, we must do so by his strength. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And I tell you that all the time. What, there's, there's two things that make this ministry meaningful and useful. Two things. One, the word of God itself. I can sit here and tell you stories all day long, but if I, if I proclaim to you the things of the Word of God, there's power in that. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So the Word of God is powerful. The second thing is the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He works in and through me. That's what makes this ministry meaningful. Nothing that I bring to the table makes it meaningful. It's all about what God does. It's all about, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I would rather you see the power of him than anything else. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every name in heaven and on earth derives its name. Which, by the way, that's, that verse requires some study of its own. Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, 
to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he's the one that gets the glory. The power that works within us is the power that comes from God himself. We need to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, as that passage says. Philippians 4.13. I have the ability to do all things in him who increases my strength. Now, interestingly, there's a context for this, right? Uh, the context... Uh, is Paul talking about uh, verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned about this before, but you had no opportunity to help. Not that I speak from a position of need, for I myself have learned to be self-sufficient in whatever circumstances I find myself in. I know how to get along with very little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, both of having abundance and experiencing need. And that's where you get to verse 13. I have the ability to do all things in him who increases my strength. Right. So God is the one who gives Paul the ability to do this, to be able to function in poverty or in wealth. You notice I fixed my links. I went back, by the way, and I don't know what happened. I don't even know how this could have happened. But I went through and I had set all these links in this slideshow and somehow they all got changed and uh i had to go back and fix them all i don't know what what happened there and i'm not going to try to worry about it either right because we taught about worry i'm not going to worry uh but these are links that should be going instead of going to the new american standard bible they go to our own translation that we did here in colossians and philippians colossians 1 9 through 12 says for this reason also since the day we heard of it we have not ceased to pray on your behalf and to ask that you may be filled up spiritually with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and all spiritual understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, desiring to please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and being spiritually matured by the full knowledge of God, empowered with all capability in accordance with his glorious might, resulting in, notice what it says here, resulting in all steadfastness and joyful patience, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Fantastic passage. Look at that. What, what it talks about in terms of walking in the manner worthy, filled up with spiritually with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and all spiritual understanding. How important is it to know the will of God? Pretty important, don't you think? Uh, it's talked about in many cases, will of God. And I, I love it that, you know, I, I like to put it in the military terms that we have in, in the Bible, we can go through and we can look at the scriptures that talk about various topics and we can understand our general marching orders, can't we? We have general marching orders. Every Christian should follow these particular things that we all need to be doing as part of our walk of faith. But then individually, we've all been called individually to various ministries, open doors for ministry, we've been called to different things that we might do. In those particular cases, what do you do? You rely upon the leading of the Holy Spirit to help you know where to go in what situation. But the Word of God gives us the construct by which we understand the basic marching orders for the Christian life. And by the way, I will tell you this, this is so important. The leading of the Holy Spirit will never, let me repeat it again, will never contradict the Word of God. If you feel like you're being led to do something by the Spirit and it contradicts what is in the Word, there's a Spirit involved but it's not the Holy Spirit. Let's put it that way. So be careful about that. But it's amazing to look at these passages. Second Timothy 2.1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, where does our strength come from? It comes from God. It's a function of his grace. Again, grace orientation is huge. If you begin to understand grace, it's just it's overwhelming almost to think about God's grace. Uh, all that he does for us in grace. 2 Timothy 4.17 says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. 
So the ministry that Paul had, which was to reach many, many people with the gospel, that ministry, he was strengthened to do that by God himself, and he recognizes that. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation would be fully accomplished, right, so that he was able to proclaim the gospel to everyone who needed to hear it. Jesus came so that we may have life and have it abundantly. We go to this verse often, and I have to qualify every time I read the verse. Here it goes in verse 10, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Does that mean you're going to be rich? You're going to be a billionaire? You're going to have 12 cars and a... No, that's not what, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about the abundant spiritual life. You, I, I, we, I was reminded... I was reminded uh, in a discussion just recently about the missionary trip that I made over to the Philippines. And in the part of the process of that, we were over there to begin. We were actually launching with pastors over there in the Philippines. We were launching a new ministry over there that was going to train indigenous pastors. So that instead of having these missionaries from the United States over there being the teachers at the local churches, you were going to have indigenous local people that were the pastors of the churches. And so it was a huge... Uh, effort that was being made and, and God's hand was in it and it was awesome to see and it's still going today by the way that, that ministry still goes to this day but when we were over there we took a side trip and we went down to this coconut plantation if you will a coconut farm and uh, we're sitting there and right there we can see not very far off the road which when I say road I'm using that term loosely uh, but <laughs> Not very far off the road was a little bench and four poles and a corrugated steel little covering over the top of it. And that was their church. And on Sunday morning, uh, the one that was the pastor that would lead that, he would go and he would sit on the bench there and he had his Bible with him. And literally people would come out from among the coconut trees and they would gather around and he would preach the message. And the Christians that we met that were part of that, they were abundantly blessed spiritually. Did they have much in terms of temporal? They did not. They had very little. Uh, and literally, I, I haven't always told this part of the story. Uh, it's important to understand that they had that. They had this abundant life. They were rich in their faith. But I haven't told this part of the story. One of the, one of the individuals that we visited there was so excited about us coming to visit and and being there and everything, he climbed right there in our presence. He climbed up the coconut tree and cut off coconuts to give to us to take with us. Seriously, that was he wanted to he wanted to give us something to take back with us. And I watched him scurry up the tree, cut the coconuts off, and come back down the tree and hand hand them to us. And they were quite good, by the way. The milk the milk out of them was very good. But anyway, uh, that's the idea. The abundant life is not talking about um, driving your Lamborghini. It's talking about spiritual blessings. God's grace. In our life of service is more than abundant. He, he gives us abundant grace in whatever it is that we're doing for him. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace... You've seen this passage so many times recently, but it's, I, can't, I want it to sink in. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I mean, that's, that, that verse really says everything you need to know about grace orientation. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not by my own efforts, not by anything I bring to the table, but by the grace of God. Yes, sir. That's a good way to put it, Chris. So the, what he's saying is that we think of his grace is enough to cover our sins, right? It's enough to, to go beyond our failings, right? And, and a lot of times we can think it's, it's, he gives us just enough grace to get past all that. Actually, the language of Scripture is that his grace goes way beyond that, right? Way, way, way beyond that. His grace is abundant and uh, beyond what we can think, right? Beyond what we can understand, actually. His grace is very much beyond that. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's very important. Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that all... I, this, I love these kinds of verses. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. <laughs> look, at, look at what it says there. Always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And it speaks to what you were talking about, an abundance. We have an abundance provided for us. We are able, and what does it mean by every good deed? It's talking about the Ephesians 2.10. 
the works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When we're doing his will and we're following after what he would have us to do, he's going to bless that. He's going to bless that, and he's going to bless it abundantly. His grace is abundant. Abundant. That language, abound. All grace abound to you. It goes way beyond just the minimal, right? It's not a minimal amount of grace. It's, it's abundant grace. The gospel message that Christ came in the world to save sinners is a powerful message for unbelievers, right? John 3, 16, we always, you know, see, these days I haven't seen it as much, but you, back in the day when you'd watch a sports, a sports event, you'd see somebody in the stands would have a John three sixteen sign. Somebody would, right? But these days you don't see it as much. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came to save us. He came from heaven, dwelled in the flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, that we might be saved through him. Uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is, was lost. So the gospel message, I don't know why it seems to be so complicated because it's not. It's simple, right? I mean, but when you hear people talking about it, for some reason they get all caught up in things and they make it complicated. It's really a simple message. We're sinners, unworthy of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? The Romans road, you take them through that. The wages of sin is death. That was proclaimed in the garden that when they ate of the fruit that they would... They would die. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. We're all under that. All of us are under that. We're all part of the Adamic race. None of us, none of us can be reconciled to God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple statement. Jesus came from heaven. He dwelled here in the likeness of sinful flesh. He lived here for more than 30 years. He went to the cross and he died for your sins and for my sins. And I want you to think, when you think about Jesus dying on the cross, I don't want you to only think about the enormity of all the sins that he had to bear. I want you to think of it in a personal way. When Jesus was on the cross, he died for your sins. Because for him, it was personal. Was he dying for everybody? Yes, he was. But for him, it was personal. He was dying for you, that you might be redeemed. And when you place your faith in him, you receive forgiveness of sins, not on the account of your own merit in any way, but because of what he did on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's as simple as that. I don't know why people want to complicate it more than that. We cannot be reconciled to God other than through the death of Christ on the cross. That was the only way. He paid the penalty as our substitute so that we might be reconciled to God. He is our kinsman redeemer. It's such a, it's such a simple message. Really, it is. The gospel message is also a powerful message for believers to remind them that they do not, they do not deserve their salvation. Uh, I think, you know, I've been saved. I was, I've told you the story. I was, I was born again when I was 17 years old. And so if we do the math, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so I've been saved for a long time. But now at some point in there, can I, start to, can I start to think that I deserve to be saved? Boy, I better not. I can, but I better not. I didn't deserve my salvation then. I don't deserve my salvation now. And by the way, if you know some pastor, for example, that's been faithful in ministry for 60 years, does that pastor deserve his salvation? No, none of us do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear that it's, a, it's by grace through faith. I don't even know why I turned there because I can say it without going to it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about pre-salvation or post-salvation. You can't earn it or deserve it. You never will be able to. It's, it is the gift of God. And it must be received through faith by grace you have been saved through faith. Titus 3, 5 through 8, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. And that would be interesting. If I were translating this, I'd probably put that in quotes, righteousness, because that's, that's human good is what that is, not deeds we've done in righteousness. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace... We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's see, where was I going to go? 
verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What's the idea? What's the same thing, really, we have in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? If I go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's the same formula you have here in Titus. Because it says, verses 8 and 9, that's, that's our salvation, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, verse 10, what is that? He says, for we are his workmanship. Now, who is he talking about? Believers. 8 and 9 is how you get saved, by grace through faith. Verse 10 is talking about believers. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's the formula. God has work assignments for all of us as his children, as born-again believers. Just any work assignment or the ones delegated by God? See, he's got work assignments for us, and he prepared them in eternity past. That's what it means when it says prepared beforehand. He prepared them in eternity past. He has work assignments for you to do. You're not supposed to just make up whatever it is you think is the best thing you do. You're supposed to seek his work assignments. What, is, what are those good works? That he has for me to do. Same formula in Titus. Paul, who was a zealous persecutor of Christians, was shown mercy by God. He was indeed the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, he was a persecutor of Christians to the nth degree. Acts twenty six nine through eighteen. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. It doesn't, Scripture never tells us this explicitly, but I believe he was casting his vote against Stephen when Stephen was stoned to death and he was killed. I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, sorry, I don't know how that happened. As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. You notice how he mentions that more than once? He was doing all of this under the authority of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me and when we had fall excuse me when we had all fallen to the ground i heard a voice saying to me in the hebrew dialect saul saul remember saul of tarsus right saul saul why are you persecuting me is it hard for you to kick against the goads and i said who are you lord which is an interesting question who are you lord he recognized that he was the lord he wanted to know who he was who are you lord and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And he's talking to King Agrippa as he does that. But he talks about what a persecutor he had been of Christians. In doing so, Christ showed us the most amazing example of his perfect patience, don't you think? That's a pretty good example of his patience with Paul doing all that he was doing, Saul at the time, all that he was doing. God tolerated that in a way that I don't think any of us would. Imagine yourself for a second in God's position. And here's Saul of Tarsus out there, not only putting, him, putting Christians in jail, but persecuting them. You know, if, if, if most of us, if we were in charge, uh, a lightning bolt would have happened. And that would have been all she wrote. Saul of Tarsus would be no more. We would have just taken him out. But in his perfect patience, uh, he saw fit to explain to Paul who he was persecuting, right? The worst, of the worst of sinners was saved by grace through faith and became arguably the most significant author of New Testament Scripture. I think we can say that. You, know, you can talk about the different authors of the New Testament Scripture. I think you can make a solid argument that Paul is, a, is one of the most significant contributors 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 15:9. he said, For I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The very least of all the saints. You can see where Paul, evaluate, see where Paul values himself, what value he puts on himself, the least of all, undeserving. Right? Again, it goes back to what I was talking about prior to jumping into the study. If God is gracious enough to save Paul then he's gracious enough to save anyone. That's kind of what Paul's trying to present here. If God can have mercy and grace and he can get saved, then anyone can. That's what he's saying. Anyone can. And that's why, you know, I've told the story before. I know you hear me repeat things and I apologize for that, but I was moved when I was in a prayer meeting at Austin Bible Church and Gary Williams opened, opened up in prayer, praying for Saddam Hussein. This was before Saddam Hussein was executed. And he prayed that Saddam Hussein might come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior before he was executed because Jesus Christ died for him on the cross. He was not somebody who couldn't be saved. He could be saved. And I was moved by that. When you contemplate God's grace and mercy in our own salvation, it it should prompt us to praise and worship. I think so. If you think about God's mercy, I mean, Kim's not here this morning, but uh, he'll tell you, he will tell you, uh, anytime you ask him, he will, he will tell you that without the mercy of God, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. He would be nowhere and he would be nothing without the mercy of God. You look at his mercy and his grace in our own salvation. If that's all we have is God's grace and mercy in our own salvation, isn't that enough to praise him and worship him? I think so. We don't, have to, we don't have to think, well, look at all these other things I want and whatever. If, if you look at your own salvation and what God has done in that, that should be enough. Proper praise and worship involves acknowledging various aspects of God's essence. See, that's one of the things we want to do. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the abundance, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has... Who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. See, really, when you want to really get into proper praise, if you really want to properly praise God, what are you doing? You're talking about who he is, aren't you? You're talking about God's essence, his character, all the things that pertain to him. If you're just really if you're just kind of going, man, God is great. Yes, he is. But let's talk about why God is great. Let's talk about his grace. Let's talk about his mercy. Let's talk about his love. Let's talk about the characteristics of God. Because when we want to pray, if we really want to praise him, we're going to bring up who he is and why he is so awesome. We're not going to just say that he's awesome. It's one of the reasons why we sing the old hymns. You know, there's contemporary hymns that are good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. There are contemporary hymns that are good. But I really like the old hymns because the old hymns, you, I mean, almost every one of them that we sing if I stopped right there when we got done singing, I could preach for an hour on what was in that hymn, the content that was in that hymn, because these things are talking about who God is and how he's so wonderful and awesome and there's content in the hymns. It talks to the things that we know from Scripture. All right. Paul's first charge to Timothy, verses 18 through 20. We're going to stop right here. We're going to go to the Scripture of the week. Like I say, we get started on time, we can actually finish early. Er. Er. (laughs) All right. We're going to all read this together. Again, I've talked about this before. I don't do this to to try to force you into some rote behavior. This is is to help us remember these verses. Nehemiah 8.8, let's all read this together. It helps us to remember. They read from the book... From the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. All right, so this is in Nehemiah and it's talking about the reading of the law, Ezra, the reading of the law by Ezra. And interestingly, you have a word here. 
which is translated, translating. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway, that's a pastoral joke. Uh, translated, translating. It's, uh, it's parash in the Hebrew, parash. And parash is the idea of explaining, explaining something. You could think of it as exegeting. You could think of it as expository in nature, right? Expository. Who is they, first of all? Well, we got to take a look at that. By the way, I will tell you, I spent a lot of time looking at this verse. And if you want to, you can go down 17 different rabbit trails with regard to this verse. And you can look at all sorts of things. Uh, who are they that are reading from the book? Well, let's back up. Let's back up in the passage. All the way to the first verse. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now that phrase, all who could listen with understanding, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Keep that in mind. All who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. By the way, that's Hebrew months. Uh, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. Think about that. It took a while, didn't it? From early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand. You see that phrase again, right? And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for, that, for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. That was one of the interesting things, by the way, about this is a significant standing up to hear the word being read, right? It shows honor, it shows respect, right? They're showing their proper respect. But I'll say this, we got, we got down to Green Hall a little bit late on Friday and we had to stand up for the whole concert. I'm kind of noticing my legs don't like that too much anymore. Verse 6, then Ezra blessed the Lord and uh, let, blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites explained the law to the people. Notice there it's explained. That's a different word. It's Bene there. Different word. Explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book. Well, it already has said in this passage that Ezra was reading from the book. So when it says they read from the book, is it talking about the Levites? Actually, it's both. Here's when you, when, there's a lot of different opinions on this. I think the one that makes the most sense given this passage is that what was going on here, remember it took place from early morning until midday, all right? We had a, when we started our review of the book of Romans, I read the whole translation we did of the book of Romans. Do you all remember that? All right, the ones who were here. Do you remember that it didn't just take one class? We didn't finish it in one class, right? I read the translation that we did of the book of Romans and we ran out of time after an hour and we had to do it. We had to finish it the next class. Well, just imagine Ezra reading the whole book of the law, right? Reading the whole thing, the whole your books, exactly the whole thing. Imagine how long that would take. So in studying this, I spent a good bit of time studying this In studying this. Most likely here's what was happening. Ezra was reading from the book of the law and he would read a section of it and then he would stop. And then the Levites that were out among the people, because they were out there among the people, all the Levites were out there among the people, they would read it again to the people and then they would help explain it. Now, part of what we have in terms of the reason why the New American Standard put that word translating there is because many of the people, remember, where are, where are we in the context here? We've just returned from the exile, haven't we? Yeah, from Babylon, from, from the Assyrian captivity, from all of that, right? This, these... Most likely the people spoke Aramaic. Now, some of them probably spoke both, right? Some of them probably spoke both, but a lot of the people spoke Aramaic. And so was there a translation that took place? In other words, did, did they read 
what had been what had been spoken now in Aramaic so that the people could understand. I think that did take place. I think it did. But see, here at this point in time, we do not have yet the Targums. Anybody know what the Targums? The Targums is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew text. We don't have that yet. That doesn't exist. So most likely they were doing some translating, but what they were mostly doing was explaining. Why do I say that? Because here's the deal. They've been in captivity for how many years? Anybody tell me? 70 years. That's right. They've been in captivity for 70 years. How many of these people had been under the teaching of the word of God during that time? Most of them, not at all. So when the law, when, the, when this is being read to them, they didn't understand it completely, did they? And not only that, they needed an understanding of how that application of the law was going to take place now that they were being regathered, the, re- the restoration was happening at that point after 70 years. They needed an understanding. So when we get to this, I don't think translating is the right word to use here. I think explaining would be a better word here. They read from the book, and that's Ezra was reading, and also the Levites were reading from the law of God, explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, what's the point of all of this? Why did I pick this as the scripture? The word of God is a message for all of us. And we, as believers, we can understand, we can understand everything that's here. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Well, the Holy Spirit was at work in the people of Israel back then. It was different because they didn't have a permanent indwelling. But they still had the Holy Spirit ministering through the Levites. Now, the interesting thing is they, the people needed the Levites, the priests, to be able to come in and help them to understand the sense of what they were hearing so that they would be able to have an understanding of the reading. So what God does is he's, he, he did it back then, and he does it today. He provides individuals to help us understand what it is that we're reading from the Scriptures, right? It's important. There's men that have been chosen by God to re- help us to understand what we're to, we're learning from the scriptures to give us the sense of it. A lot of times it's putting it in a context. A lot of times it's putting it in a proper place. Where does this happen? Does this happen? Does this happen out in the field or does this happen at the tabernacle? Where does this take place? You have to put it in the right context and the proper understanding. That's what the, the priests were having to do back then, right? So when we look at all of this, there's an, there's an explanation. And to me, this is expository teaching. That's what was taking place here is there was a, this was expository teaching by the priests to the people of Israel to help them understand what they were hearing from the word of God. So it was needed back then. It's needed today. Amen. Now, importantly, this was not the first time something like this had happened. Can anybody tell me when a similar event happened previous to this? Right. We have here we have their regathering after 70 years and Ezra is reading the scriptures to the people and the priests are helping them to understand it. This happened once before. Can anybody remember? Well, they were the they Under King Josiah. Yes, they were cleaning out the temple and they found this book. What is this? Oh, wait, it's the word of God. <laughs> right? And, and, the, and the reading took place then. And the same exact thing happened that we have here. The reading took place. These people at that time, they hadn't, they hadn't heard the reading of the, of the word in how long? I mean, the book was collecting dust, right? I mean, that's the picture that we have from scriptures is this thing was collecting dust and it pulls it out and, and the reading takes place. And by the way, the people responded then just as they do here. There's great enthusiasm. People were weeping. People were shouting for joy when the word was being read. But even back then when King Josiah uh, was having the book read at that point in time, the priests were there, the Levites were there to minister to the people to help them to understand what they were hearing from the reading. It's very important. That was the role, by the way. And I say, when I say priests, you know, if you want to get technical about it, I'll go ahead and give you, I'll be, uh, I'll be a little geekish when it comes to this. If you want to really be technical about it, the priests were the descendants of Aaron. The Levites were part of the priestly tribe, and they, in, they were in service for the house of God, right, for the tabernacle or the temple. Technically, they're not really all priests, but nonetheless, they were there, as it says in this passage, they were there, the Levites were there to help them understand the things that they were hearing from the word. Does that make sense? These are things that when I'm reading, when I'm doing the through the Bible reading, I notice these things. These things jump out at me when I notice a verse like that. It's like, wow, that's interesting 
that God pointed that out, how they needed that. And again, if you want to really, if you want to, if you want to go down rabbit trails and lose about six hours of your life, just go do a, just go do a study of the, those, those eight verses of Nehemiah chapter eight. You will, you will, you will find yourself swimming after a while. Yes. That's correct. So Paul is absolutely correct. When it says to give the sense, it was not only to help them understand what it meant, but how to, how to use it in their daily lives. So they were, they were basically giving them application. And give, keep this in mind, their circumstances were different and in the regathering after the 70 years of captivity than they had been previously, right? They were now functioning in a different environment, and they needed an understanding of how that was going to work at that point in time, right? Because it wasn't the same as it had been before, right, Paul? I mean, they're in a whole different situation now. And so they needed to understand to be able to make application. Anyway, I thought it was important to look at this because it just shows you that God has always sent individuals, used individuals, to make sure we can have a proper understanding of his word. Did you have a comment? Yeah, in Acts 26, when uh, God spoke to Paul, yep. it specifically says in the So that's a deep question. Back in the Acts 26 passage, when the, the Lord actually spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, he spoke in a Hebrew dialect. And Ed's question is, was that because the other people around him did not speak Hebrew? Honestly, nobody knows the answer to that question. Uh, but uh, that is one of the things that's postulated, is that the message was specifically for Paul. And since the others around him did not speak Hebrew, that by speaking in Hebrew, that way Paul understood it, but the others did not. Others say that it was simply uh, a message in the Hebrew because it was Jesus, the Jewish prophet, speaking to Paul, the, the Jewish uh, kind, of, kind of trained under Gamaliel and all the other things, right? I mean, the, this, he, the man of the Jews, right? So he was, he was speaking to him in the language he would be most familiar with and most comfortable with. But I can see where both are arguing. I mean, the, the scriptures don't say. But that was, one, that was one of the things that's postulated is that the, the other people around him would not have understood because the message was in Hebrew. Well, the thing about yeah. Paul was that he knew the law, but he had no sense of the law. Yeah, so, that was, that's, so the, what Paul was saying is to use this passage here, Paul was an expert in the law. He knew the law. He knew the law very well, but he didn't have the full sense of the law because he didn't, like a lot of them didn't, yeah. right? Because when they started... When they started criticizing Jesus about what, some of the things he was doing on the Sabbath, he said, I am the Sabbath, <laughs> right? I am, I'm the one who gave the Sabbath, basically, yeah. One of the tragedy is most of them stayed in the law, reading the law, but they forgot about their prophets. And had they known Isaiah, they would have recognized the need. So, so, yeah, so, right, if the, the, that's the thing. If they fully studied all of the scriptures and not just the Pentateuch, if they didn't just focus on the first five books, and they'd have studied it all, in particular Isaiah 53, it would have become really obvious who that was talking about. It's, it's, right, to, right, to this day, they have, another, they have another explanation for why Jesus was persecuted, that he was re- rebelling against the Romans. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality of it is, so, and I'm, I'm going to close with this, and it's something I kind of wanted to talk about at the beginning um, as well, and I forgot to do so. You know, the scriptures say that, that Satan blinds the minds and blinds the eyes, right, of individuals so that they might not see the light of the gospel message. I think I'm starting to understand now that that blinding actually goes, even that blinding actually involves, I guess I should say, more than just that specific message. I think there's people today, some of the belief systems that are out there today, it's obvious that people are being blinded because the answers are so utterly obvious. It's so clear what's going on, and yet they cannot see it. I mean, a simple thing as as I can prove to you, I don't care who you are, I can prove to you what gender you are. That's not a hard thing to show. It's easy for me to show what gender you are. And for so many people to believe this idea that I can, I can identify as a gender and because I identify that way, I now become that gender, you have to be blinded. 
And I think part of Satan's blinding of people involves things like that as well, right? Getting caught up in the, what, what way to describe it is getting caught up in the world system, right? Part of his blinding is, ca- is getting him caught up in the world system. I thought it was great. I read a, a Dilbert cartoon, um, which, by the way, he's persona non grata now. Uh, if you didn't know that, Scott Adams, he's persona non grata now. But anyway, I, I love Dilbert cartoons. And he said in a cartoon, this person walked up to the office and said, uh, my pronouns are she, her, and they. And uh, Wally, if you've ever read the cartoon, Wally, the one who drinks coffee all the time and doesn't do anything, uh, Wally responded and said, I identify as somebody who doesn't use the proper pronouns. <laughs> and the, the person then answered, checkmate, I've been defeated, right? <laughs> I've been defeated. So I thought that was a great, I thought that was a great response. Anyway, uh, I think, I think this, these, kinds of, these kinds of passages we have in the Old Testament are edifying. By the way, in our reading, if you haven't been following along in the reading so far, the two-year Bible reading, this week, this week, we start reading the New Testament. So if you haven't been reading it because you just can't bear to read the Old Testament scriptures, this week we start in the New Testament. We got to finish up yet. We got more to read in, in Nehemiah. We got we're going to do some we're going to do a psalm. We're going to get into Malachi, of course, or as Arnold Fruchtenbaum would say, the uh, Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, but Malachi is going to uh, be the finish finish up that we do for the Old Testament, and then we start reading the New Testament uh, in the Gospels uh, as of this week. Yeah, Purim. Yeah. Esther story about, and that, that's where you get into the Purim, right? Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's interesting how that kind of thing works, right? When Nehemiah approached Artaxerxes and he talked with him, his heart was softened. That's exactly right. God worked through him to soften the heart of that man. So that can happen. That's why we want to continually be witnesses, because you don't know how God might work through you to help soften somebody's heart. Yes? Uh, 1246, is that what she said? 40. Yeah, he has blinded the, their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Now, what, what, is the, what is the original context of that? Anybody tell me? He's talking about Israel. And, they had already, and, and, and he's doing that. They had already hardened their own hearts, right? And so now he's doing this so that they, they would not see in their eyes proceed with their heart and be converted and healed. But I see when we talk about this kind of thing being done, when people's eyes are blinded, I guess where I'm going with that, when people's eyes are blinded, when their heart is hardened and their eyes are blinded, it goes beyond just the gospel message. It goes into the whole world system, belief system, right? It's all part of that. That's where, yeah, and so thank you for that. But that's the idea that, that's the idea is that, that it go, it's, it's all encompassing, I think. They're blind. I mean, if, seriously, if, if you take a simple look from a, from a scientific perspective, a simple look at the human body, the only conclusion you can come to, if your eyes are not blinded, the only conclusion you can come to is that this did not happen accidentally. This was not a random accident. It didn't happen from the goo to you through the zoo. It did not happen. It is something that God had to do, something that God had to do. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time of study. Thank you for the precious truth of your word. Thank you for all that we can learn uh, from just studying your word that's been delivered delivered to us and preserved for us. Help us to just cherish these times. Help us to just look at it as as a a food that we need, just as much as we have to put food in in our mouths so that we can feed this body. Our souls need food, and your word is that precious food that we need. Help us to just desire it more and more. Help us to understand when the word is convicting us and showing us where we fall short that we can recognize that we are we are continually to be growing day by day transformed by the renewing of the mind it's got to be a process little by little and as those convicting messages messages come from your word we need to embrace that 
be thankful for the opportunity to, to grow, to become closer to you, uh, to learn what it is that you would have us to do and what, we, what, we're, what we're expected to do. And Father, we thank you that your, your attributes are perfect. Your righteousness is perfect. Your justice is perfect. Everything about you is perfect. We are imperfect. You are infinite. We are finite. And yet, you still love us and desire a personal relationship with us. You would desire that each and every one of us would walk in a manner worthy. And Father, we need to also embrace that. We are thankful for the grace that you've poured out upon us abundantly. Our salvation is a testimony to that abundant grace. But as born-again believers in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are now part of your royal family. We've been adopted into the royal family. And you have things for us to do, work assignments. You have a life for us to live that's not the same as the life that we lived prior to our salvation. So help us to desire that. Help us to seek after it. Help us to grow every single day. And help us to indeed walk in a way that is honoring in your sight and glorifying to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Close with a final.